Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 12, Luke chapter 12. And uh, that's a good sign up there, isn't it? One way, both ways. There you go. You can't have it both ways. Uh, we're going to look at the Prince of Peace causes conflict. Kind of sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, and we're going to see what, what Jesus teaches us in this text this morning that's a little different than what we normally think. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus come to earth? You would probably think to yourself, well, you know, he came to show us the father. I mean, after all, doesn't John 14, 9 say, um, you know, uh, he who has seen me has seen the father. Wasn't that one of Jesus' purposes in coming to reveal God to us? And of course, that's true. Um, I think most people would probably say Jesus came to live a perfect life and die on the cross. uh, and be resurrected so that all who would place their faith in him could be saved. And, uh, of course, that would be true also. One of the best known texts in all the Bible, John three sixteen and 17 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So that is certainly one of the reasons why Jesus came. But there is another side. Sure, he came to save those who would believe, but what about those who won't? Then that's a whole different story. Jesus came to start a process of judgment that would end at the great white throne judgment still far off in the future. If you step back and look at our text in its overall context, it's one long day in the life of Jesus. Jesus started out doing a miracle, was accused of doing it by the power of Satan. Other people wanted to see something bigger and better. Jesus starts to rebuke the leaders, rebuke the crowds. The crowds then are are very fickle. And uh, he does have some disciples in front of him who are kind of scared because the religious leaders are against Jesus. And the great mass of people is hard-hearted and unbelieving jesus is then taken to lunch by one of the pharisees and they try to gang up on him and prove him wrong he exposes them as hypocrites and makes them furious he leaves the house they're angry they're following him then he stands in front of the crowds insults the religious leaders more then he sees the fear on his disciples faces he tries to comfort them encourage them tell them not to fear men reminds them of the great blessings in the kingdom that is to come And so that is kind of what's happening. And if there is a time that Jesus ever felt a kind of holy frustration, it is in the text this morning. I don't know if there is such thing as holy frustration. But Jesus seems to be there. He's he's he wants to see this huge multitude saved. I mean, it was all big at the beginning, and then it says it kept increasing, increasing, and increasing, and finally the people are stepping on each other. There's so many thousands of people there. And just the frustration of wanting to, wanting them to receive him as the Messiah. I mean, all the predictions in the Old Testament so that people could know those, and then when the Messiah came, would say, you're the guy. And so Jesus is fulfilling all of those predictions. And they won't believe in him. 
Ah, it must have been heartbreaking. So Jesus decides to take a little different track in our text this morning. And he's going to see if he can get them jarred out of their stupor of unbelief. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace in the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For now on, five members in one household will be divided three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say, hey, a shower's coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be hot today. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites, do you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky? Why do you not analyze the present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. From this text, you can learn three reasons for Jesus' coming, which aren't normally mentioned, but which stand as warnings to those who will not believe and also give those who have believed, I think, a better glimpse of Jesus, the gospel, and maybe a little different tract of how to preach the gospel to those who are hard-hearted. First, Jesus came to judge unbelievers. Look at chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, when you read a statement like that, that just sounds scary. I don't know about you. Fire, I I kind of picture napalm, you know, flamethrowers, scary stuff, firebombs. I don't know. Scary stuff. Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. And yet, how could that be? I don't know if uh, you noticed it. But earlier, Jim read a text, John 318, where Jesus talks uh, uh, about an interesting subject about judging the world here. He talks about casting fire, but then there's other texts where he says he does not come to judge. For instance, turn back to, um, uh, Luke chapter three verses 16 and 17. You have to ask yourself, what does this word fire mean? Well, it can be used of literal fire. Usually it's used in a figurative sense. And when it's ever used of a figurative sense, it's almost always of divine judgment, if not always of divine judgment. And the first place fire is used in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, John is addressing the multitudes who are wondering if he's the Messiah. And he says in verse 16, John answered and said to them, all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and 
fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now here, John says, I'm not the Messiah, but when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. We know that's true. First uh, Corinthians 12, 13, are we not all baptized into one body? That is the church through faith in Christ. Yes, all believers receive the Holy Spirit, are placed into the body of Christ and therefore have the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he says, and fire. Now, who gets baptized with fire? Well, unbelievers. We know that unbelievers are judged, are cast into hell, the lake of fire. And so it's clear that Jesus is talking about this because he then makes the comparison of wheat being gathered into the barn and chaff being burnt up with unquenchable fire. So fire there has the meaning of divine judgment. I think that is pretty clear. Later in Luke chapter 9, if you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 54, I'm not going to go into the details of the text. I think you probably remember. This is when Jesus is going along and um, they stop in a Samaritan village. And uh, as he's headed towards Jerusalem, and because he is headed towards Jerusalem, because they are Jews, um, the Samaritans will not receive Jesus. They won't show hospitality to him, which was a huge insult at that time. And so the disciples then ask, Lord, can we command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? And that is a pretty aggressive statement. They wanted to do what Elijah did in second Kings chapter one, verses 12 through 14, where Elijah is, is basically accosted by 50 soldiers sent by the wicked King Ahaziah. And when they come to take Elijah captive, Elijah says, if I am a man of God, my fire come down out of heaven and consume you. And guess what? Boom. I don't know what it looked like, but I'm sure it was scary. So when the king finds out about this, he sends another 50 soldiers and another captain over them to Elijah. And Elijah says, listen, if I'm a prophet, or I'm a man of God, may fire come down out of heaven and consume you. And all of a sudden that happens. And so now you've got 102 burnt bodies. Then the king sends another one. This time the soldiers and the captain are very humble. Please, please don't burn us up. And, uh, and they escape. But this is what the disciples were asking for. They wanted to do what Elijah did They wanted to be able to command divine judgment to fall from heaven upon unbelievers. And so those are the two places fire is used figuratively before our text. And then after our text, there's another uh, text in Luke 17, 29, which I think all of us are familiar with. The judgment of Sodom. Jesus just references the judgment of Sodom by fire. And what happened there? There was sudden, unexpected, divine judgment upon unbelievers from heaven. So when you look at our text and Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. Some people have said, well, that's just talking about um, fiery relationship conflicts, which 
you know, he does go on to talk about that. And so you can see why you could say that. But the problem is, is both before and after Luke, fire, when used figuratively, is used of divine judgment. So then you'd have to ask yourself, is there any place in the near context of verse 49 where Jesus actually mentions judgment? Well, you could say, well, on that same day, as recorded in Luke 11:23 and 11:31 and 32 and 11:42 and through 52 and 12:2 and 12:5 and 12:9 and 12:20 and 12:40 and 12:45 through 48, but that's all. Um, he does mention judgment, and so I think the best way to take that phrase is, "I have come to cast fires of judgment upon the earth." Now, this does cause a problem because there are several scriptures, and we're going to look at them in just a second, that say say Jesus did not come to judge the world. And see, whenever you're preaching and whenever you want to, you know, you you know all these verses because you study the Bible all day, and then you come to a passage like this and you think this is what you think. You think, you know what I could do? I'm just going to skip by this passage. I'm just going to not mention this, these verses, and I'm just going to preach what's in the text. I won't have to explain anything, and then we can move along. And then I have more time to talk about other things. But then you know there's always the person who comes up afterwards and goes, but Pastor Hughes, I found these other verses that say the exact opposite. How come? And then you have to preach the sermon right there in front of the church uh, to one person. So you're all going to get it now. So turn over to Luke chapter, or John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Let me just show you a couple texts that clearly say Jesus did not come to judge. And so how are we going to reconcile that if fire is judgment and Jesus said, I've come to cast fire on the earth? I mean, how do we deal with that? First, let's establish the fact that Jesus did not come to judge the world. John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light unto the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world. But to save the world, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Yes, Jesus came to save those who believe. He says he has come as a light here in the text for those in the darkness. And he says specifically towards the end of verse 47, I did not come to judge the world. And this is the same thing Jesus says in John 3.17. That we read earlier when we read John 3.16 and 17. The son did not come into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. So you think you say, well, either Jesus came to judge the world or he didn't come to judge the world. Or both. Or both. I was setting you up for the either or fallacy. Um... Is it this or is it this? When the answer is both. And you know, many false teachers have come up with their false doctrines by 
latching on to a few scriptures and teaching those scriptures as if they represented everything the Bible teaches. And this is common. You'll find these people that kind of have these blinders on. They go, I've got my verse or I've got my two verses. I'm not going to look at their context, but this is what the Bible says. Jesus did not come to judge and Jesus did not come to judge. Therefore, Jesus did not come to judge. And then you say, but what about, ah, but look at my text. See, that's very dangerous. Whenever you're going to teach what the Bible as a whole teaches, you need to make sure that you look at all the related texts and look at all of those texts in their context, understand them in their context, then synthesize everything the Bible says into a cohesive, agreeable whole, which sometimes is very difficult and takes a lot of work, and that's why false teachers don't do it. Now, whenever you're looking at scriptures and you're trying to find out what the bible says it's kind of like a huge jigsaw puzzle let's say you know i i come up to you and i've got this big box and it's got this huge puzzle and i'm only showing you the brown under the side and i dump out all the pieces and i don't let you see the lid because the lid shows you what it's going to look like right so i just dump out all the pieces and then you go up there and you grab a piece or two pieces and you look at them and go oh, i know what this picture is I can see it right here. This has got some black and some white on it. And this one here has some black and some red. It's black and a red and white stripe. That's what the picture is. You can't tell. You can't tell what the whole jigsaw puzzle is by looking at two pieces. And so it is with the doctrines of the Bible. Now, granted, some of the, of the doctrines of the Bible have very large pieces and not very many of them. Other ones are quite complicated. They have a lot of pieces. So if you want to see what they teach as a whole, if you want to see the whole picture, you got to look at all the pieces. And so that's what we're going to do here as we look at this whole idea of Jesus coming to cast the fires of judgment upon the earth and yet not coming to judge the earth. So what is that about? How do we understand that? Well, we might want to start by asking ourselves, why are people judged to begin with? Why, why, why are people judged? Well, you could say, well, because they're sinners and it's true, but you know what? Everybody in heaven is a sinner and they're not judged. If sin guaranteed judgment, then everybody would be judged, right? But all the elect in heaven, all are sinners and yet are not judged. So why are people judged? I just went through the scriptures. I have these little eight reasons why people are judged. And as I read them, I just want you to think about what they're saying. Because there's a common denominator in every one of these reasons. Listen. One. They deny Christ. Matthew 10, 33. Two. They will not repent and believe in Jesus. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Three, they will not believe in Christ so as to obey him. John three thirty six. Four, they are selfish and obey unrighteousness rather than Christ. Romans 2, 8. Six, they regard as foolishness the word of the cross, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Seven, they do not believe the truth so as to be saved, but love wickedness. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. And 8, they are disobedient to the words of Christ, 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. Do you see anything common there? All the people are judged because they all reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why. You know, any sin will get you into hell. Any sin makes you a sinner. Anyone puts your soul in jeopardy. And so that's not the issue. The issue is, is what you do with Jesus or what you do not do with Jesus. Jesus is standing before a group of people who refuse to believe in him. They're believing that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life. And he's going to die and they won't believe that he was the son of God who died and they won't believe he rose from the dead. A few of them will, but most will not. You see, it was at Jesus's first coming that Jesus laid the groundwork for future judgment. Now, judgment hasn't fallen yet as far as the actual punishment upon the wicked. Those who die end up in hell. But even that isn't the ultimate judgment, the lake of fire, which happens after the great white throne judgment. Jesus, in coming to earth and doing miracles and preaching and teaching and dying and rising from the dead, he fulfilled all of the promises that all the Old Testament saints believed in, which saved them. Remember Hebrews 11 says, all these, speaking of that big list, died in faith without receiving what was promised. What was promised? That God would send a Messiah. That Messiah would die for the sins of the world that he would rise again from the dead. These things were predicted in scripture. And Jesus at his first coming put reality to the promises in the Old Testament. And now those promises for us on this side, we look back to as historical facts that we must come to grips with. Otherwise we get judged. We get judged. And you know, you might think to yourself, well, are you sure? Because if Jesus came to judge, then how come we aren't judged? Well, let me ask you this. We'll just switch subjects here. How come you aren't saved? You think, well, I am too saved. Well, do you sin? Well, yeah. Are you in a sin-cursed world? Well, yeah. Do you suffer the consequences of being in a sin-cursed world? Well, yeah. So that I thought you were saved. Well, well, I, well I am. How? Well, in the future, I will escape the presence of sin as well as the power of sin, as well as the eternal consequences of sin. And I will receive in the future all that God promised. So my salvation, though real right now, is experienced in the future, right? When you're perfect in heaven with Christ. Though judgment is real now upon those who will not believe, it waits to be experienced in full in the future. Same type of thing. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 18. John 3.18, not Luke. We're doing Luke 3.18 and John 3.18. This is a little confusing, I know. I hope I don't mess you up. But John 3... 18, this is right after the God so loved the world passage that he gave his only begotten son. I want you to look at 318. He who believes in him, Jesus, is not judged. 
He who does not believe in him has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. As soon as you know about Jesus, as soon as you reject him, you fall under what? Judgment. Now, look back at verse 17, the middle. It says, for God did not send his son to the world to judge the world. Verse 18, in the middle, he who does not believe and has been judged already. What? Well, what are you talking about there? We're talking about believers and unbelievers. We're talking about those who believe are not judged. Those who do not believe are judged already. The moment they will not submit to Christ, the moment they will not repent of their sins, the moment they will not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again on the third day, the moment they, they reject the gospel, judgment is already there, abiding, remaining, staying upon them. It's like they're under this guillotine, this razor-sharp guillotine that's just hanging over their neck. And it's there. Judgment is already there. Look over in verse 36 of that same chapter, John 3 36. Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God hangs over him, abides on him. Judgment is there. Judgment is there. Now, is it fully realized? No. Are they judged? Yes. See, you can look at judgment as passing a sentence of guilty. And then you can look at judgment as actually experiencing the punishment because of the guilty sentence. Well, those who reject Christ are judged instantly. You reject Jesus, you're instantly under judgment. So this is the state of all of those in the crowd. They have refused to believe in Jesus. If you look at John chapter 5, verse 22, you'll see another interesting little section here. Jesus is explaining how he came to do the Father's will. He says in verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. So we know that Jesus is the judge, right? That's pretty clear. Then he goes on to say, let me see, skip down in there. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment is passed out of uh, death unto life. Notice believers pass out of judgment. You know, I sometimes I talk to Christians who say things like, you know, I, my sins and I keep blowing it and I know I'm going to give an account for every bad word that I've said and every false deed that I've done. No, no, no. All of your bad deeds, all of your sinful deeds are forgiven in Christ. He takes them out of the way. He wipes them clean. He washes you clean. He remembers them no more. You have passed out of judgment to life. Don't think God's going to go, you know, I'm glad you're enjoying heaven, but remember when you did this. Grovel some more. No, no. He's not going to do that. Jesus goes on to say, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to 
the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So now he, he has been given this authority from the Father to judge because of who he is, the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So he's speaking of the future. The judge in the future, this is what's going to happen. Everybody in the tomb is going to hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so notice here that future judgment is promised unbelievers if they reject Christ in this life. We've already seen that they've already come under judgment, the sense of judgment, but they're going to experience it. Yes, when they die, they're going to go into hell and they there they're going to await until the resurrection when their souls in hell are united with their bodies in the grave and they're going to be glorified, so to speak, fit for eternal destruction. They will stand before the great white throne and there they will be cast in a lake of fire for ultimate judgment. Turn over to John chapter 9 verse 39. And here is Jesus speaking of a different kind of judgment, but just to prove the point that he is judge, John 9, verse 39, speaking to a blind man that he is healed, he says, for judgment I came into this world. Now, isn't that, you know, if you look at John 3, you know, 17, and what was it, 12, whatever it was, he says, I have not come to judge. And you read this, for judgment I came into the world. It's like, is he schizophrenic? What is the deal? Well, he says, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And what is he talking about here? This is talking about his hiding the truth from some. There are some who are blind, and when they hear the truth, they can see and are saved. There are those who think they see everything fine, and they keep rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the clear teachings of Christ until finally he hides the truth from them and keeps it from them as a form of judgment. That's what that's talking about. Turn over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now judgment, oh, verse 31, sorry, Ju- John twelve thirty one. Now judgment is upon this world. And he says, and now the world of this ruler of this world will be cast out. But notice the judgment is there. The verdict is given. And this is the verdict. Anybody who rejects Jesus is instantly placed under judgment. They're in the, the line. They're on death row, so to speak. You reject Jesus. You're instantly put on death row. And so you're in the line for judgment. Recently, somebody offered me some very nice tickets to the Dodger game with VIP parking. And included in those uh, tickets was this offer. Do you want the tickets to see the game? Now, if I were to say... Yes, and the person said, okay, you can have the tickets. That doesn't mean they instantly pop out of my computer on my email, land in my lap. It doesn't mean I'm instantly at the game either, does it? No, I got to get, you know, maybe I get the tickets the next day. And then I have to wait a couple days for the game. And the game finally shows up. And then I go to the game, right? So even though I have the promise, and even though the day after I might have the tickets... Yet still, the game is a day or two off. Well, you reject Jesus, 
You got the promise. You've got the promise. You're under judgment. And then you may experience in this life blindness, spiritual blindness, some misery. After you die, yes, you will suffer in hell. But the worst part's still coming. And eventually you get the big deal. At the end, you're judged. That's what Jesus is talking about. Look at the middle of Luke twelve forty nine again. Back to Luke. So Jesus, how does he feel about this casting fire upon the earth? It sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? He says, and how I wish it were already kindled. Oh, I wish it were kindled. Now think about that. Does that just kind of, is that scary? Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's tried all the niceties. He's tried the miracles. He's tried reasoning. He's tried all these things and they aren't believing. So he says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. And man, I wish it was happening right now. Which tells us what? That the fire he said he came to cast is a what? Future fire. Because he wishes it were kindled, but it isn't yet. But it's going to be. It's going to be. Upon all who will not believe in him. I don't know about you, but you know, you ever watch TV or read in the newspaper or, you know, maybe you're looking at internet news or whatever. And you know, you just, do you ever just see all that junk on there? Do you see that junk there? Do you ever read, uh, hopefully you don't read the newspaper and just go, oh, news. I hopefully you notice that it's murders and rapes and extortion and politics happening, you know, attacking each other. And it's just all this trash and junk and scary stuff going on in all these different aspects of the world. Did you, did you just see that? And do you ever just think to yourself, oh, I wish God would do something about it. Do you ever think that? It just, you just long, you just, you know, wish that God would just come down and just clean up the world. It's just like, it would be great if every computer that had pornography on it just melted down. It would be great if every, you know, murderer was just bound hand and foot and stacked up in front of the police station instantly. It would be a large pile, wouldn't there? And you just have that feeling that, you know, I just long... For safety, I long for security. I long for righteousness in society, honesty, fairness. Jesus wanted that too. He wants it more than you could ever know. He is perfectly holy. And so he says, I've come to cast fires on the earth and I wish it were already kindled. I want it to happen. So then why doesn't he do anything about it? It's like, well, then unload. You know, get out the big guns, deal with it. Look at what he says in verse 50. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What is Jesus talking about here? I think we all know he's talking about his death by crucifixion. Same in a different text in Mark, it is paralleled with that. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist. He's not talking about water baptist. He's saying I have to die first. Why? Because it would be on the cross that Jesus would bear the guilt and judgment of those who would believe in him. It would be on the cross that Jesus would put reality to the gospel, to his words. So that people could be judged for not receiving the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
Jesus is talking about his desire to punish unbelievers here. And we know he's just said to whom much is given, much is required, right? And, and what have they been given? This huge multitude in front of, well, they see the Messiah firsthand. They hear Jesus teach. They watch him perform miracles, cast out demons, produce food out of nothing, fulfill the messianic promises. They have been given much. And Jesus says, I just can't wait to deal with these hard-hearted sinners. At the same time, which may be kind of hard for us to understand, Jesus is also trying to get them saved. If they're going to reject him, they're already under judgment. If they believe, they'll be saved. Let's just say you're standing on the deck of the Titanic. And there you are, the the ship's going down, and uh, you get off and get into the last lifeboat and there your friend is holding on to the rail get in get in you say he looks at you it's like no this ship is a lot bigger i think it's going to be okay no it's not get into the lifeboat no i'll be fine and soon the waters wrap around him he gets sucked under in the vortex and dies now why did he die because the ship was sinking no There's a lot of people on the ship who made it. Why did he die? Because he wouldn't get in. He wouldn't get in. This is what Jesus is saying. Get in. Get in the lifeboat. I can save you. Judgment is coming. Don't just stand there on the deck of the Titanic and go down with it. Get in. Off the boat. And that's what he's talking about. And if you sit there and you listen to the gospel week after week and you're clinging to your sins, you're clinging to the world, you're clinging to things destined to perish, man, you're going down for certain. Everyone is a sinner, even the saints in heaven. That's not why they perish. They perish because they reject Jesus. Secondly, Jesus came to cause division. You know, even this and okay, cast fire, cause division. That's easy. I mean, doesn't that just make you want to go, what? It just seems so non-Jesus-like, doesn't it? Jesus came to cause division. You know, earlier in the sermon, I said, why did Jesus come? How many of you thought in your mind, well, obviously he came to cause strife and division. (laughs) I mean, did that even come to your mind? Probably not. Look at verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? And we think, well, peace. He is the prince of peace. And he did say, blessed are the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. And his apostles did teach, be at peace with all men and pursue peace with all men. So, yeah, I think that's the case. Good. Good. Look at the middle of verse 50. I tell you no, but rather division. <laughs> That is so fun. <laughs> the word, when he, when he says, I tell you no, but rather division, that word but there is the st- strongest contrasting conjunction in the Greek. Absolutely, definitively not. But rather division. I came to divide people into two categories. That's why I came. My teaching, my offer, 
My gospel divides men into two categories, the saints and the ain'ts. <laughs> Believers and unbelievers. Those going to heaven, those going to hell. It divides people. And I came to call out of humanity all who wish to stand with me against the world, against sin, against unrighteousness. And believe me, that causes division. The word division might be translated parting, disunity, discord, dissension. And it just seems kind of shocking that Jesus would say something like this. But again, that is why he's saying it. And he wants these people saved. He's going, okay, let me just see if I can just like blast them out of their stupor. They're sitting on the ground going, oh yeah, can't you do another miracle? We were just, you know, move on from the lecture. You know, can we see another demon being cast out or some people healed? I've come to cast fire on the earth. What? I've come to cause division. What? And then he gives those examples in verses 52 and 53. We won't go over them again. But all the, the, the details there, all the people there are family members. The closest, tightest relationships in the world will be torn apart because of Jesus's first coming. In a similar text, on a different occasion, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 21, brother will be betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Think about that. Your kid causing you to be put to death or you being so angry with your children, you're going to have them executed. Think about that. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to send man against his father and daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is on a whole different occasion. Our text in Luke is no fluke. It's what Jesus taught. He came to divide people. Why? How? And there's a one word answer. Truth. Truth divides people. Truth creates antithesis. You know that word? Antithesis? Antithetical-ness? You see, if I say Jesus is God, then that means any view that says Jesus isn't God is wrong. Do you wonder why there's, you know, 170 different Baptist denominations? You ever wonder why that? It's like, man, those people like to divide. They're like amoebas or something. You know, they're just <laughs> dividing all the time. Why? Why does that happen? Well, if you go back in church history and you say, why are, why are all these denominations? If you look back, you kind of go back, you know, to Jesus. But why from the apostles where there's all this fracturing? Because different people would study the scriptures and say, hey, you need to be baptized as a believer by water. And the other people say, no, you need to be sprinkled. Fracture. The truth now has divided somebody because the truth says this is right and this is wrong. There's a disagreement. There's a fracture. That's what truth does. So you come into the world and you say lying is wrong. Cheating is wrong. Deceiving is wrong. Gossiping is wrong. Adultery, immorality, fornication, homosexuality, evolution, abortion, 
all these things are wrong. And what happens? Instantly, you're at odds with the world because they think it's right. You've instantly taken a stand antithetical to them. Face it, following Christ is a narrow way, isn't it? I mean, when Jesus says in John 8, 24, unless you believe it, I am he, you will die in your sins. That's pretty exclusive. When he says in John 46, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's either my way or the highway to hell, and that's it. There is no other way. You can't invent your own Jesus, remodify me, redefine me, change me a little bit, turn me into something I'm not, and get to heaven. You can't do it. You can't take my plan of salvation, add to it, subtract to it, and get to heaven. It doesn't work. It's my way, my only way, the single way, or no way. I am God. I am the creator. I made you. I came to earth. I died for you. Now you either accept my way or it's over. I don't know. That's not very political correct, politically correct, but it's true. And so Jesus lays this hard claim in front of the world. And what do they do? They kill him for it. But not only they kill him for it, sometimes they kill his followers. They kill his followers. And just talk to any convert from Islam to Christianity and ask him, so how did it go? Or maybe somebody involved in strict Judaism. And, you know, all of a sudden they break out in their family like, what? You know, we're going to have a funeral for you and that's going to be it. Don't ever call again. Or even some strict Roman Catholics or just any other strict religion. You break away from that. You side with Jesus. You instantly become enemy. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said in the upper room right before he died in John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. As soon as you say I'm following Jesus, what you're saying is, is I'm at odds with you and your wicked lifestyle. And how that interpreted is, well, we don't like Jesus. We don't like Jesus's teaching. And since you're the messenger of Jesus, we don't like you. They hate Jesus in you. That's what's happening. So when Jesus says, I've come to cause division, what he's saying is, I've come to make men an offer of salvation by which if they accept it, it will cause strife and division between them and the world. And I know there are people here in this congregation right now who are going through conflicts with husbands, wives, parents, neighbors, co-workers. Why? Because they're Christians. And I know pretty much everybody here, if I said, have you ever had that happen to you? Everybody get angry at you, not want to talk, don't give me your religion stuff. Huh? Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, just, you know, the standard fare for Christianity. I mean, you want to see them saved, right? You want them to know Christ. You want them to have forgiveness. You don't want them to go to hell. So you try to share the gospel with them. And then what do they do? Don't tell me about that. And then you go, oh man, Lord, you go back and you pray a whole bunch more. Okay, I'm going to talk to them one more time. You go back and they're like, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's like, well, what do you do? Then you go back again. And pretty soon, don't come over. You know, it's like, it's like the more you try to do them good, the more they hate you for trying to do them good. 
I mean, it doesn't always happen that way. But I think if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for very long. You've seen it happen to one degree or another. It's painful. And you know what? It happened to Jesus and is happening to Jesus in the text before us. Third, Jesus came to rebuke unbelievers. Look at verse 54. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. Cool. You're a little amateur weather men and women. You know, uh, the, if you think of Jerusalem to the west of Jerusalem was the Mediterranean Sea, there'd be the onshore breeze as the, those moist air would come up. It'd start hitting the hills of Jerusalem. Clouds would form. It'd dump on the hills and kind of a standard thing. When I was in the Forest Service, one of the things that we looked for um, during the summer were these little white puffy clouds early in the afternoon because those little white puffy clouds would kind of grow and swell and stick to each other and pretty soon they'd turn into these huge thunderheads in the shape of an anvil, blast the forest and start a bunch of fires so we could get overtime and hazard pay. You know, it's like, oh, cool, look at them, there they are, you know, money's coming on the sky. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Whenever it happened, that we, would, we would see it happen. It would just happen that way. You know, we do the same kind of thing. You know, the wind starts blowing from the east. You go, oh, we've got an east wind. It's going to be hot. To them, it was south. But, you know, I mean, you know, anybody's a pretty decent weatherman at three or four hours beforehand. You go outside and you go, it's sunny. I think it's going to be sunny in a little bit. You know, an hour or two, it's probably still going to be sunny. You're pretty good at that. Jesus says, yeah, you're pretty good amateur weatherman. But then look at what he says at verses 56 and 57. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Now, why does Jesus call them hypocrites? Well, because they're able to look at the physical signs and make pretty decent predictions. But now that the Messiah is in front of them, the one they've waited for, the one they know the scriptures about, the one that's done miracles, the one that's labored to explain to them who he is, they won't believe. They can't see the spiritual realities right in front of their face. And so this is a rebuke. Oh, yeah, you're a great amateur weatherman. You can't even see the Messiah in front of your face doing miracles. Hello? Look at verse 58 and 59. He decides to whack him from on the other cheek now. For while you were going with your opponent before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now, someone has a lawsuit against you. They've filed and you know the court date is coming. You know... That you're guilty. And if you go to court, you're going to be found guilty and you're going, to, you're going to go to prison. What do you do? You just sit there until the court date so you can go to prison? No! You call up your lawyer and say, well, let's get together with the other people and see if we can, like, work a deal. Let's see if we can, you know, maybe I could make some restitution. Maybe we could, you know, plead for mercy. You know, whatever. Beg. Uh, whatever it takes, you know, so I don't have to go to prison. Let's try it. It won't be a big deal let's do it i mean anybody would do that if it was either don't do anything and go to prison or possibly get off 
and not go to prison, what would you do? Hello. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You're guilty. And you're going to stand before the judge and he's going to throw you into hell. And so right now is when you need to get things settled with me. If you don't get settled with me, you're going to be in big trouble in the hereafter. When judgment day comes, you're going to be any sane person would settle beforehand so they don't end up in prison. Any sane person would settle with Christ now so they don't end up in hell. Do you see that? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You know, you can look at this text and say, well, man, Jesus is mean. Jesus is saying, I want to cast fire and I desire I was already kindled and, you know, you're going to get judged. And it's like, oh, this is a bad text. No, you need to look at this text like this. Jesus is trying everything he can to try and get these people to believe. He has a love for them. He has a compassion for them. He has a desire to see them saved. He wants to see them saved. He's laboring to see them saved. He's telling them right now, get right with me. So you won't be judged, please. But still, a lot of them won't do it. It shows us his love, his mercy, and his compassion for the lost. So what do we see in this section? Somebody came up to me and before the service and said, you know, I hope you have an encouraging message. I say, well, I'm going to tell you what Jesus says, and hopefully that'll be encouraging. <laughs> it's, it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. Um, Jesus just really amps up. You know, when you look at these texts individually, you see, you, you can see, th- you know, it's, things can seem harsh and just hellfire and brimstone. But when you stand back, You see Jesus with a compassion, a determination, a desire to see every one of those people saved. And he's pulling out every trick he's got, man, every tool in his toolbox to try and get them saved. He's working at it. And so why did Jesus come to speak those words to fulfill that gospel by which all unbelievers in the future would be judged? And to let them know that rejecting him in this life put them under that line of judgment that awaited for them in the future. Secondly, Jesus came to cause strife among people as he would bring people to himself and call his sheep to himself as they would side with him in his truth, in his way. It would cause them to be put in opposition against the world and even blow up families, which I know many of you have experienced. And third, Jesus came to rebuke those who have hardened their hearts against him to let them know of the danger that they are in, to let them know that they may be able to predict the weather a couple hours out, but they need to look at the spiritual signs in front of their face and believe that they need to be sane and rational And realize judgment is coming and they are guilty and they need to settle now and not wait until it's too late. So if you've never come to Christ as your savior, don't delay. And if you think, well, I'm glad you're over this text because in the next text, I'm sure it gets better. No. No. 
No, I, I believe me, I'm trying everything I can to br- bring something happy out of each passage, but it gets worse. And Jesus is doing this because when kind words, when thoughts of heaven, when loving presentations of salvation by grace through faith alone and his person and work don't work, then comes down harsher realities, an attempt to shake people out of their unbelief and to drive them in desperation to the Savior, which is where they need to be in the first place. So with that, let's bow our heads and ask God to apply this to our lives. Father, we come before you acknowledging that we are sinners, that every one of us, saved and non-saved alike, deserve to be judged. That is not the issue. The issue is what have we done with Jesus? Have we received Jesus as our Savior? Have we turned from our sin to follow him? Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, anybody here who has not repented and believed, I pray that they would do that today. That they would finally just give up their sin, give up their love of the world, give up their own autonomy, and that they would bow the knee before Jesus Christ, trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection to save them, that they might be settled out of court and therefore pass out of judgment to life. Father, for the rest of us, may we look at Jesus here as an example of persistence, of diligence, of not giving up, of continuing to proclaim the truth, to proclaim it in different ways, to proclaim it in different degrees of hardness, whatever it takes to bring sinners to repentance. Father, we thank you for his great example. Help us to be like Jesus and our love for the lost, our desire to see them saved. And Father, we trust that you will bring in to your flock all those that you choose. And Father, we thank you for using us as instruments of your grace in the lives of people who need the gospel. May we be faithful to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.